Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Stephen Reich, Professor of History at James Madison University in Virginia, and we're going to be talking about World War I and the Great Migration, which was the mass movement of African Americans out of the American South between 1916 and 1970. Dr. Reich, can you outline race relations in the United States between the American Civil War and World War I? Sure. Nice to talk with you all. Um, thank you for inviting me. Before World War I, race relations in the United States came to be defined by what's called Jim Crow. Um, they sort of organized segregation, particularly in the American South, by, by law. And these uh, segregation laws, or so-called Jim Crow laws, uh, governed almost every aspect of everyday life uh, in the American South, including work and leisure, love and marriage, health and well-being, even birth and death. Just about every southern state had passed a series of laws that prohibited things like interracial marriage. Um, the United States military segregated its, uh, it, its units of its armed services, employers, often in collusion uh, with labor unions, refused to hire black workers, um, or they established workplace rules that would have prevented black workers from being able to earn higher wages or to be promoted uh, and to have occupational mobility. Segregation restricted blacks where they could eat lunch, um, where they could uh, get a, a drink at a water fountain. They had to ride in separate streetcars. Uh, and trains, balconies of movie theaters, uh, segregated schools, um, and even uh, the oath on the Jim Crow Bible uh, in the court of law would have, would have segregated things. These uh, segregation laws emerged around the 1890s and were made possible because southern states had passed so-called disfranchisement laws. And most southern states had either revised their statutory um, laws or had rewritten their constitutions to prevent black people from being able to vote. Now, these were laws that were written in sort of race-neutral language, uh, meaning that it excluded people based on things like literacy. So you had to take a literacy test or you had to have paid a poll tax. Um, it, it ensnared working people or poor people or less educated people of, of, of both races, but the intent was clearly racial and the outcome was clearly racial. What this whole Jim Crow uh, regime, both in the restriction of the blacks' access to politics and in their prescription in everyday life, was aimed at undoing Reconstruction which was this period following the American Civil War in which the United States experienced a brief moment of an experiment in biracial democracy, which African Americans had the right to vote and participated in, uh, in elections and had won elective seats to state legislatures and even had won governorships. And during that period had, had passed some fairly progressive uh, legislation, but the, uh, the United States Supreme Court, through a series of decisions, undermined the reach of Reconstruction. So a series of court cases between the mid-1870s and the early 20, uh, 20th century undermined the reach of Reconstruction and it empowered the southern states to, um, uh, to prescribe black life under Jim Crow.
Now, from 1914 to 1917, American public opinion is slowly coming to terms with the idea that the United States will enter World War I. Now, were African Americans part of this growing national consensus? How did they view the war? Blacks viewed the war with ambivalence. Um, there isn't a black view of the war. Some African Americans of um, particular note uh, and uh, political visibility, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, wrote a very famous editorial in which he advised African Americans to close ranks, counseled that uh, African Americans should support the war effort out of a longstanding belief that expressions of patriotism and um, supporting the war um, would enable African Americans to make a case for the expansion of citizenship rights uh, at the war's conclusion. That's an argument that had been made before. That had been made before, and that African Americans had used that very argument with some success coming out of the Civil War. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had even recognized shortly before his death that he was coming around to the idea of allowing former slaves to have the vote, particularly those who had been veterans of the Civil War. And so there's this sort of this disbelief that military participation is connected to these broader citizenship rights and that the fight for war um, and, to, and to join a war uh, that President Woodrow Wilson during the time of World War I had argued was a war to save the, the world for democracy, make the world safe for democracy. Um, the war to end all wars is sort of very expansive, democratic, um, universalist language that the Wilson administration used to promote the war and to promote the war effort. African Americans thought they could seize on that language and argue things like, well, if we are fighting to save democracy in Europe, um, we can save democracy in Alabama and Mississippi. Other African Americans saw the war as, and this, this language as hollow, as hypocritical, and argued that they should stay out of the war, that the African Americans did nothing to gain from the war effort. And so you see a lot of African Americans resisting the draft, publicly expressing support for Germany, um, arguing that the Germans would do more for black people than the Americans would. And, and so you see uh, at, at, at that time then um, the sort of range of argument in black newspapers and in black public sphere about where are we going to fit in this war effort. And at the same time, American whites, particularly in the South, are ambivalent too about whether they should allow blacks to be in the war. Because on the one hand, they kind of thought, well, if we allow black men to, to join the army, they can be cannon fodder, and we'll, we'll let black boys take the first shots and so forth. But at the same token, white Southerners are deeply unnerved by the prospect of putting African Americans in uniform, a symbol of authority, and to training them on how to use weapons and how to fight. And so this sort of this fear that, well, if we train black people how to fight, they're going to come back and then they're going to fight us. And so you see this real tension uh, and ambivalence expressed uh, up and down the political spectrum. So what role does World War I play in the start of the Great Migration? First, the war curtails European immigration. American industry had heavily relied upon 
large numbers of um, European immigrants to feed the expansion of the second industrial revolution this, that really takes off after the Civil War and is expanding exponentially, um, steel-making, meatpacking, uh, railroads, uh, and then the emergent automobile industry by the time you get to World War One. And European immigrants had been had supplied the brawn of, of that labor force. But the start of the war in Europe greatly curtails the number of Europeans who are coming to the United States. I think you have about 1.3 million European immigrants arrive in 1914. Up by the war years, 1915, 16, 17, we're down to fewer than 200,000 European immigrants okay. a year. Um, at the same time, American industry is expanding because the United States is beginning to ramp up its industrial production, even though it's, it has in, isn't participating in the war yet. It is producing things that other other European powers are going to need and is preparing for war. And so the labor demands are increasing in American industry. And this compels American uh, industrial producers who are particularly in northern cities, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, New York City, uh, Detroit uh, in particular, to look for new sources of labor. And African Americans are a ripe labor pool to tap uh, for that. And so uh, black people seize on those new opportunities and uh, are pulled north by new economic opportunity. Now, can you describe the recruitment process? Yeah. How are they finding out about these jobs? Black newspapers are widely circulating in the South, uh, particularly papers from Pittsburgh and Chicago, and the Chicago Defender is portraying the North as a promised land, and they print all kinds of advertisements. Um, they uh, publish um, literature and poetry that extols the virtues of the North. Um, the editor of the Chicago Defender, Robert Abbott, is very influential uh, in, um, in, in, in doing this. Um, they publish um, advertisements about job opportunities. They publish um, articles about the neighborhoods in which they can live, about housing opportunities, cultural opportunities, and so forth. At the same time, American industries are sending labor recruiters down uh, who are um, trying to uh, recruit um, black people to, uh, to, to come north and offering them uh, train tickets uh, and subsidizing their, their ventures to the north. Uh, but at the same time, you really have to recognize the migration as a grassroots social movement. It grows out of long-standing patterns of migration within the South that had been happening since uh, Reconstruction, in which African Americans are were always circulating within the South for new economic opportunities, and had long built uh, economic lives by shuttering between farm and factory, between country and city, and they had long learned of opportunities elsewhere through these networks of kith and kin. And so the great migration to, uh, to, the, to the north is a, is a outgrowth of these larger patterns that had been happening. And so it's really not a sort of a static black population all of a sudden wakes up and understands that there, all of a sudden there's opportunities in the north, um, that these is, this, this circulation had been going on for a long time. And so the kinds of ways in which 
black people and families and communities had learned about opportunities in the eastern south and in the western south, those same uh, information networks uh, fueled the, the, the great migration. And so you would see things like a black father might go north first, establish a place to live and get a job, and then he would write home, and then he would send for his wife and his other dependents, and then other other people in that community, whole congregations, might then organize and come and, and come north in that kind of chain migration pattern. Okay, so you have men moving north, you have women, families following. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. now extended families. Extended, as well. right. And then how are they getting north? Can you describe the, any accounts of the trip? Railroads, so you have railroads that feed, so you've got railroads that are feeding down the eastern seaboard. And so you have African Americans in the Carolinas and in Virginia would take railroad passenger cars um, and come north, um, and that would feed into places like Pittsburgh and New York, um, and even to places, um, out-of-the-way places, even uh, the um, Long Island, and way out on the Long Island, you would see uh, people coming uh, going that way. Then you would have railroads in the center of the country, pull people out of Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana and come up the Mississippi and feed into places like uh, Chicago and Detroit um, uh, and even into Cleveland, and they would, 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 follow, would follow that pattern. Many of the railroads would feature what they would call migration specials. These would be cars dedicated just to bringing, just to bringing black people. And so um, sometimes historians call this, this movement out of the south to the north in this period the Overground Railroad in reference to the Underground Railroad of, 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 um, of escaping from slavery. At the same time, white employers in the south, very nervous about losing black workers through migration, would try to intimidate black people from getting onto these migration these migration special trains. And sometimes you even have these sort of um, lurid tales of the ways in which um, uh, these sort of jackleg recruiters that the industries would send out who would round up black people who were willing to come to the north and put them on boxcars and send them north under the cover of darkness. And in some literary tellings of these, um, of, of these uh, movements, it invokes um, memories of the Middle Passage from Africa to, the, uh, to, to what, was the United, what would become the United States. Sort of, they don't know where they're going, and there's uh, a lot of fear uh, involved in this. But those would be literary examples, but they do draw upon actual examples of this of this movement. So they're reaching the north after what can sometimes be rather harrowing, harrowing trip. trip. Yeah. What is the reception like? This was cast as the promised land. Right. What's the reception like? Liberating and exclusionary intention with each other. One of my favorite ways to explain this the novelist Richard Wright, who was a migrant himself, who grew up in Mississippi and had moved north to Memphis, and then subsequently had moved north to Chicago, where he where he then became uh, he established himself and became the great novelist that he did, calls life in the urban north a teasing torture, in which you have 
this you are living in, a, in an environment of untold abundance and consumer possibilities and of nightlife and of lights and of show and of excitement and possibility yet african americans are still living in poverty and are not able to taste the full meaning the full promise of that of, of that of that abundance we sort of call this sort of elusive abundance um and so that tension then really comes to define the migrant experience. Um, on the one hand, African Americans are transplanting a southern culture in northern cities, and so we begin to see the establishment of uh, black businesses, uh, restaurants, cabarets, sports clubs, barber shops, uh, insurance uh, companies, and so forth. Um, but even like some of these restaurants would bring a taste of the South, a taste of down home, uh, and, and sort of offering things like uh, spare ribs and macaroni and yams and, and, and things of that sort. And so you begin to see a southernization of American of American cities, um, and and then there's also these you know this new black consumer market that black businesses are now able to cater to. African Americans are able to live in um, apartments that have running water and have heat and have toilets, and so by comparison to the rural South, this is actually pretty good. Even though by northern standards these are dilapidated places, and at the same time you have a housing shortage during the war because. Uh, because of the economy, all the all the economic development is going into mobilization for the war effort, and yet you have all these people moving in uh, to the city, and so they're subdividing these apartments, and these apartments are sometimes rodent-infested and insect-infested and so forth, and in Richard Wright's novels, these things, um, these, these cases come, uh, come out as well. And black people who are migrants having to um, hobble together who's going to live in these apartments, and so they draw on families and they put up borders, but yet that becomes a source of overcrowding, but is also a source of nurturing at, at, at the same time. And so we see African-American migrants are more likely to live in houses and housing uh, and apartments with people who are extended kin or who are, are non-related than you would see in the general population uh, as well. And so black people are getting access to jobs that they never would have had before. Um, in an American industry, meatpacking, steelmaking, automobile manufacturing, those are paying good wages, but at the same time, they're not getting promotions as well. And even though they are getting a foothold in American industry, their grasp on those, on those jobs still remains intermittent, and they are most vulnerable to temporary employment or to underemployment or to unemployment when things, when, when, when things slow down. Do you know what cities saw the largest influx? Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. Big manufacturing. Big manufacturing. Pittsburgh. In Detroit, fewer than 6,000 blacks called Detroit home in 1910. I think there's more than 120, 130,000 African Americans are living in Detroit by 1930. Uh, and you see that same pattern in some of these other other cities. Cleveland has so many black Southerners living in it that they, they read black people call Cleveland Alabama North. But you also see um, smaller cities, uh, Gary, Indiana, Toledo, Ohio, Akron, Ohio, Milwaukee, uh, Omaha, uh, also see influxes of African Americans because they have ancillary industries that support 
these major manufacturers as well. So like Akron with tires and that feed the, the automobile industry or Toledo is making automobile parts that go into Detroit that put the assemblies of the cars together. Do we know how many African Americans moved north just during the World War One period? 500,000 is the best estimate during World War One. That's a considerable yeah, movement. It's of a considerable movement of people, right? And um, even though that migration is coming out of longer stand, longer patterns of migration that I talked about earlier, there's something fundamentally new about this pattern because it is it is leaving the boundaries of the South and it is bringing black people in, in an influx of black people into these cities that we have never seen before, and so there's this generates all kinds of commentary in both the white and the black press about how African Americans are going to adjust to life in the in the North and in the white press that is sometimes hostile. You see, well, black people are not going to survive. They're going to they're going to succumb to disease. Uh, they're not, they're not going to survive the cold. Um, uh, white people will they will find that white people in the north are no more accommodating to African Americans than white people in the south. In fact, southern whites understand black people much better than white people in the north would, and so African Americans are going to find that the southern whites is their friend and not the northern whites. You have all this kind of commentary to trying to make sense of what of, as, as what is happening. You see a brief slowdown in black out-migration right after the war because there's a pretty steep recession. Um, but by 1921-22, that migration is picking up again. Um, the United States passes um, immigration restriction laws in 1921 and 24 that permanently curtails the number of European immigrants who are coming. And so between 22 and 1930, another three quarters of a million African Americans leave the South and come to the North. And then the migration really kind of slows down during the Depression, only to pick up again during World War II. And between 1940 and 1970, about another four or four and a half million African Americans leave the South. Um, and so you then see, after 1970, African Americans beginning to leave the urban North and relocate what we call reverse migration to the South. Now, World War One ends in 1918, mm -hmm. but victory is followed by something called the Red Summer. I kept coming across that in my, my background right. research. What is the Red Summer? It is a violent outgrowth of or violent response to all of the tensions, social and political and economic tensions that black migration engenders. There's a dress rehearsal for it, I hate to use that phrase, but or a preview of what would come in 1917 in East St. Louis, an East St. Louis riot, which is a horrific um, melee of largely white workers in meatpacking attacking black workers and their families, sort of the fears of migrants taking black jobs. And so and then in 1919, we see race riots in places like Chicago, which is one of the biggest ones, but also in other places like Washington, D.C., and Omaha, Nebraska, but also in places like Longview, Texas, and in Phillips County, Arkansas. So this is north and south. And also in 1919, we see a resurgence of lynching which is the sort of the vigilante um, killing of black people, 
ten of whom are veterans of the um, of, 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 of World War One. Black people come back to the South, and they are under um, under military law allowed to wear their uniform in 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 civilian society for I think three months. Don't quite quote me on that. Um, white people were not happy seeing African Americans walking the streets in their uniform, and then they would claim. Uh, that African Americans were being uppity and using that um, uniform as a form of authority, and so there'd be violent backlash against against that. But many of these um, riots and lynchings are connected to black efforts to seize the economic opportunities of the war and to seize the political opportunities of the war. African Americans are organizing politically in a way that is also new. Um, the NAACP sees a massive upsurge in its membership, particularly in the rural South. Um, and the NAACP coordinates a membership drive in 1918 and 1919, fed a lot by veterans of the war. We see an upsurge in, um, in black socialism, particularly coming out of places like Harlem and A. Philip Randolph. We see an upsurge in something called Garveyism. The United Negro Improvement Association is Marcus Garvey's group, which is sort of organizes around black nationalism. Now, there's lots of tensions between these political groups, and they don't often align, but they are sort of together on a sort of an idea to expand democracy, to expand voting rights, to overturn segregation and Jim Crow, uh, and to secure black economic opportunity and to organize into labor unions. Um, there were efforts to organize blacks into unions in the Chicago meatpacking industry. Um, there were even some efforts of African Americans to join the um, the steel strike, um, the general strike in 1919. Um, and so you see an upsurge of labor activism, uh, and African Americans are joining that. And then the tensions about whether African Americans would be reliable allies in, in labor unions or not generates part of this violent backlash. And then one of the most horrific riots in this red summer is in Phillips County, Arkansas in October of 1919, which just marked the 100th anniversary of that. And this was um, African Americans who organized their own union to demand higher wages to pick that year's cotton crop. And they were going to hold out to pick the cotton crop. And the planters and who or organized a um, uh, people to uh, white people to destroy that union and to fire into churches and there's just horrific number of people who were killed uh, in that event. Any final thoughts on World War One and the Great Migration? The migration transforms the American labor force. Black people were only partially and episodically members of the American industrial working class. By 1930, they are anchored in the American industrial working class. The migration recenters the focus or the center of black economic, political, social, and cultural life from the South to, 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 to the urban North. And it's there that you see new beginnings of black politics, black literature, media arts, radio, uh, magazines, um, literary expressions, musical expressions—all of this is is possible uh, because of the because of the migration. Black sports, Negro leagues—it it, it really goes 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 on and on. And so, and then and then 
what a Philip Randolph would call new crowd politics, uh, a new kind of politics that would be much more assertive and seek to fulfill the promise of Reconstruction. And so when we talked earlier in the podcast about the way in which Jim Crow was aimed at curtailing the reach of Reconstruction and the promise of emancipation, the Great Migration opens up new channels and new possibilities toward fulfilling that uh, and really makes possible um, the potential for the Civil Rights Movement because uh, new political possibilities come out of World War II that are only there because of the massive people that are in the urban north and the wealth that they've got and the connection to new industrial unions in the 1930s with the, with the CIO and so forth. And so um, what becomes the March on Washington in 1963 grows out of these channels and these currents of activism that are born uh, in the 1920s and come to fruition in the 30s and 40s. That's very fascinating. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.